You are listening to Haunting the Studio, a podcast about horror and music and all things that orbit those two points, across genres, styles, and nations. Listen in for all things musically spooky. I'm Tyler, joined as ever by my co-host Andy, and introducing our third mic, Nick, for our own little relaunch as a podcast. Andy, Nick, how you feeling? Alright. Yeah. Yeah? Fucking ready to go. Excellent. Yeah, I got a fistful of prep and some NDMA. Let's oh, fucking fantastic. Go. <laughs> We're thinking of adding something a little bit new to the podcast, along with our kind of refocus. Just a little bit of uh, a little bit of what we've been listening to lately. Andy, do you want to start us off? Yeah. So recently, one of my favorite bands at the moment, Black Midi, released their third album. It is wonderful. It kind of took me until this album, though, to realize, like, oh, they're just a jazz band. They just play jazz. And then I went back and listened to their first album and kind of went, like, oh, all this, like, fucking... It's, like, no wave, but in the 21st century, like, no, it's just jazz. (laughs) It's just jazz, but if every instrument was, like, in physical pain. (laughs) (laughs) How about you, Nick? Uh, Jumping off the no wave point, I guess, I've been listening to a fair amount of swans because I hate myself. Um, oh, we hate you too. Oh, thanks, B. Uh, I've also been listening to a little bit of Converge recently and the new Chat Pile album which dropped, all thoroughly, consistently feral, and I love them dearly. Oh, absolutely fantastic. Well, I've been on a completely different wavelength to both of you. I've been listening to a little bit of late 80s, early 90s uh, sleaze rock. <laughs> <laughs> the stuff that kind of, as shuffle repeat once put it ditched the makeup and arseless chaps put the denim and the the leather back on and tried to give music kind of in the style of the glam metal genre a little bit of a another kick right at the tail end of the 80s and into the early 90s didn't really go anywhere i think guns and roses were really the only band to pull it off and i mean some people argue over whether they even count as sleaze rock but i've been listening to a couple of the lesser-known entries in that genre, especially uh, Vane, who I introduced Andy to not long ago. Pretty good. I think it's kind of like a, you know, a working workhorse band, um, Vane. Didn't really get anywhere, I don't think. Maybe a little bit of regional success where they were based, but didn't really kind of take off, as a lot of the sleaze rock movement didn't really manage to... You know, they broke a little bit into the charts, but didn't really get anywhere. But I've been enjoying it. Um, I've also been enjoying a band called Spread Eagle. <laughs> yeah, Hell I know. Yeah. I know. In a similar vein. Oh, yeah. In a in a similar vein. Um, uh, the main what, vein. I see what you did there. Yeah, thank you. As as Vein themselves, uh, a little bit sleazier, I suppose. Vein had a little bit more of a focus on kind of, you know, the kind of not quite sappy, but more more of a love song focus. Whereas Spread Eagle are you know a bit sleazier or a bit a bit dirtier a bit grottier mm. it was um, Vane that did that song that like you think they did yeah. the song that i thought well i was absolutely certain was a song about like decriminalizing homosexuality but it turned out it's more along the line of wing is 17 yeah. which is really really unfortunate <laughs> um it's kind of a thing that holds the album down and it reminds you how much how much cultural mores have changed in the last 30 odd years but yeah spread eagle in vain been listening to them um if you can tolerate sleaze rock they're 
pretty fun workhorse bands, but I Sleaze Rock isn't really for everyone, and I don't really begrudge anyone that. Mm. And it's just something they've got a couple little earworms that really get stuck in my brain. Spread Eagle have especially have this song called Switchblade Serenade, which has been just drilled into my head recently, so I've kind of been having to listen to it to try and get it out of my head to listen to other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the kind of band that you're like, you really need a thorough drilling, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is sleaze rock. Yeah, as, as is the, uh, the dude's sleaze rock genre. So, if you're joining us from the earlier episodes of the podcast, or the radio show even further back... You might be wondering what this uh, little relaunch is about. Well, we are kind of zeroing in on the musical side of horror, uh, is the short answer. Of all the media of horror, music falls somewhere a little down the totem pole. It's somewhere below films, books, and video games, and possibly a couple other formats that horror is expressed in. It's in the middle of the chart, if not maybe a little bit lower. Not quite at the bottom, but on the way down. Maybe not an entirely foreign concept, but music is not really the first port of call when most people think of the word horror. It's this kind of intersection of a niche subculture with a media that's not immediately associated with it that interests us. And, you know, the primary question is how does sound scare us? So to start our exploration of horror of the audio kind, we are beginning with uh, one of the most unquestionably famous fusions of the two. An artist whose name evokes its own world of the musically macabre, who has dominated the world of horror for half a century. And that is, as my, as my co-hosts here will know, Alice Cooper. Specifically his legendary 1975 album, Welcome to My Nightmare. Uh, what better place to start than an album that stands on its own two feet not only as a landmark of horror's integration into music and the popularization of that integration, but as a landmark of its era as well. One of the standout albums of the 1970s. Whenever you see those big lists of who were the biggest acts, what were the biggest albums of the decade, Alice Cooper might not be quite at the front, but usually top 10, top 20, and usually that entry is Welcome to My Nightmare. Now, before we get on to who was on this album, just a little quick rundown. Well, not a quick rundown, but a little quick aside. What are your two kind of experiences? But this is, like, the first time that I've really gone and, like, sat down with a, with an Alice Cooper album, you know. Uh, I've listened to the odd, you know, track, but ne never had I actually sat down and, you know, cover to cover listened to a to an Alice Cooper album. And I'm, like, just thinking, like, why did, why did I wait? so so long i could have been doing this years ago <laughs> you know <laughs> how about you nick um i think i got into alice cooper at a weird point i think the first album i heard from him was dada which in retrospect is not the best starting place and i think i've heard everything between trash and dragon town which covers i think his late 80s um early 2000s mm. work all right cool so we have a little bit of experience on the one hand, not so much experience on the other, if not maybe a little bit of flow-on experience from my own love for the man. So I think it's time to give a little detail of the album itself. Welcome to My Nightmare is the first solo album after the split from the Alice Cooper band in 1974, um, with Cooper chasing these dreams of solo stardom 
he linked back up with the producer Bob Ezrin, who worked on the string of highly successful Alice Cooper Band albums between Love It to Death and Billion Dollar Babies, um, which came right in tight in about a three-year period, about four albums, each of which was quite successful. And by this point, um, already had Bob Ezrin already had credits with Aerosmith, Lou Reed, Flo and Eddie, and Dr. John, among others, and would go on to amass just way too many credits to count. Most albums we cover, if there's any kind of, you know, uh, professionalism behind it, if there's people professionally working in the industry, even if they're not the big names, you're going to have at least one of these people. Someone with just an insane number of credits, too many to count, um, usually someone who's working behind the boards on the technical or production side. And for this, it is definitely Doctor. It is definitely Bob Ezrin. Can I ask what work Bobby Bobby Ezrin did with Lou Reed? Sorry. Uh, so he worked on the nineteen seventy three album Berlin. Oh yeah. And Berlin will come up again a little bit further down the line, in the in this episode. Hmm. So the two of them brought the bulk. Oh, it comes up now actually. The two of them brought the bulk <laughs> of the Lou Reed live band into the studio for the for the project. These were all people who had worked live touring after the release of Berlin. Some of them had worked on Berlin itself. So it's very much that era of Lou Reed that is being brought on for this album. This consisted of guitarists Dick Wagner, Dick Wagner and Steve Hunter, uh, the bassist Prakash John, and drummer uh, Penty Glan. Wagner and Hunter had worked with the Alice Cooper band before also previously having worked on the bands The Frost and Detroit, respectively, while John and Glenn had been in the band Bush together before John went on to play with Parliament and Funkadelic. All four would go on to work with Alice Cooper again at various points, Ezrin himself even providing some vocals, keyboards, and synth work. Ezrin was joined by Joseph Chorowski on keyboards and vocals, there was also additional vocals provided by David Ezrin. I checked, I wasn't quite sure if David is Bob Ezrin's brother or a relation. Hmm. He might be, but I just wasn't able to quite confirm it. Gary Leons and uh, Michael Sherman and the Summerhill Children's Choir. That, I mean, when we get to the song, it's pretty obvious where they, where they fit in. On Welcome to My Nightmare and Escape, there was bass provided by Tony Levin. Tony Levin is another one of those guys. He has over 500 session credits. Very much in the same vein as some of the other session musicians that we'll, you know, get to know over the course of this podcast, and people like Ezrin, who just have, you know, they're industry guys. They just wind up working on pretty much any album that comes up for them. Uh, and there were drums provided by John Budenjek, John Budenjek worked with Edgar Winter, Dr. John, Bob Seger, Ronnie Montrose, and Nils Lofgren throughout the 1970s, so another, like, lineup of pretty big 70s acts. So there's a fair amount of, in the musical side of things, there's a fair amount of professionalism coming into this album. Obviously, we have Vincent Price quite famously providing the character of the curator in Black Widow, while Trish McKinnon provided the character of Mum in the song years ago. Lastly, there's a little bit of behind-the-boards notes. Ezrin did a fair amount of the heavy lifting here, but there was some arrangement work from Alan McMillan, 
another person who had been brought over from working with Lou Reed, and production assistance from Michael Sherman. Mastering was by Mike Reese, another too many to count when it comes to credits, this guy. And recording was split between A&R Studios, Recording Plant East and Electric Lady, and the soundstage. The track Escape was originally penned by the Hollywood stars for their uh, shelved debut album Shine Like a Radio, uh, and Only Women Bleed was originally penned by Dick Wagner for his 60s band The Frost. Both of these, when it came to Welcome to My Nightmare, were reworked by Wagner, Cooper, and Ezrin for this album. So with that, we've got kind of the context of who was working on this. It's an album, again, with a pretty strong degree of professionalism and a number of people who had worked with Cooper before during the Alice Cooper band years. So, with that in mind, uh, how did everyone feel about it? I loved it. Fucking... So why'd you hate the album, Andy? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, why do you hate art? Uh, I fucking... there's, There's so much to love on this album. I enjoyed it. It's a little bit out of my wheelhouse in terms of music I would generally listen to or music that I have had a lot of experience with. I guess I'm more familiar with more modern styles of rock and hard rock, Um, but I enjoyed it quite a lot. It's interesting to see how some of the theatrical elements of Alice Cooper's music has been carried forward into later releases like Hey Stupid and Brutal Planet. Yeah, it's... This is the first time that Cooper really threw himself into a concept for an album. It is a concept album, if a little bit looser than some other concept albums that we will probably wind up covering on this show. But you do see the template here that he would reuse a number of times over the coming 20 to 30 years, pretty much right up until the last few albums. It is worth remembering for this album that it was originally written more to be a stage show than to be a concept album. The album is kind of a carriage service for Alice to put together the kind of vibrant, macabre kind of stage show that sprouted out from this album. So in that sense, it is interesting because it's a concept album where the album itself isn't necessarily the most important element, I think. And I think you can also see that in there are parts of the album where uh, Cooper has clearly made a decision to just kind of pep things up a little bit after one of the more depressing moments on the album. Um, it notably happens with Only Women Bleed being followed by Department of Youth and with Stephen being followed by Escape. Department of Youth and Escape, probably the two most upbeat moments on the album whereas Only Women Bleed and Steven are probably the two most depressed moments on the album. So there's this kind of dichotomy that when you have in mind that it is for a stage show, it makes a lot of sense, because it would be almost the closing of one act, and then you kind of pep everyone back up with something to, re- to re-excite them after a more depressing moment that's you know dwelling a little bit more in the macabre. It's interesting how you mentioned the stage show is an important part of it, because I do feel as though Alice Cooper's got a bit of a reputation for being one of those shock rockers, Uh, and I'm not sure how well-deserved that is. I'm not sure if it's a case of... I mean, how many times do you need to be (coughs) beheaded on stage before it's considered shock rock? (laughs) I think the better question is, is, how many times do you get beheaded before it's no longer considered shock rock? (laughs) Yeah! 
I'm not sure if it's the same, if, if it's something about video nasties. I'm not entirely sure if, I know that was a craze, or that was a, there was some hysteria around the video nasties, and I'm not entirely sure when that was, but... Uh, late 70s, early 80s. Okay. Not long after this album came out. And I know a lot of those, the reputation kind of exceeded the extremity of the content, and it feels like, listening through to this, with the current lens, it's kind of goofy, it's kind of fun, it's it's kind of light-hearted, uh, not all the way through, but it's not it's not as dour as some of his later works. It's still got quite a bit of prep in its step. It's still quite playful, despite being occasionally reasonably dark. I, I think that's kind of what it set, sets it aside from like maybe someone else like Marilyn Manson, who was also shock rock, who also had an extreme live show. But the difference is, like, we can sit here now almost 50 years after... Ooh, almost 50 <laughs> years after uh, Welcome to My Nightmare and think how, you know how great it sounds like the art artistry behind it that he's had this the his career's also had the longevity and Marilyn Manson is um awful <laughs> <laughs> yeah like, even if there weren't you know elements of Manson's character that have been kind of besmirched by his actions his music just hasn't had the same long-lasting impact I mean if you look back to some of his contemporaries I mean like Slipknot are still kind of, you know, a go-to band from the late 1990s, early 2000s, um, in a way that Marilyn Manson just isn't quite anymore. Yeah, and if you look at, like, you know, Nine Inch Nails, who is, you know, inarguably responsible for Marilyn Manson's career, you know, their early works and through their later works, and you know, still hold up, and, you know, they just won a Grammy for a Disney <laughs> Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross and um, Jean-Baptiste fucking won a Grammy uh, not a Grammy, an Oscar wasn't it? Uh, they, won, they won some they, one they of won those an, big ones they won an Oscar for the social network back in 2010 and I'm not sure what yeah. accolade they got maybe an Oscar because Soul was a yeah it was film. for Soul so. yeah. and th this is also coming from someone who was absolutely obsessed with Marilyn Manson in high school mm just in high school <laughs> no by the time i got to university that was well behind me you know it does feel like the songwriting and the variety of sounds that you have on welcome to my nightmare holds up quite well yeah you mentioned that the songwriting and the artistry holds up and it's definitely quite impressive how many sounds that he's pulling from or the the group is pulling from uh, for this release it's incredibly lush it's reasonably varied i don't have the best experience with that particular era of music so i'm not entirely sure how it sits amongst its contemporaries but yeah that's something i think you and i'm pretty sure andy would agree with me on this it's something you could say for a lot of the early glam rock movement in the early to mid 1970s is that they drew from a very wide breadth of sources with, you know, with this album in particular, you have very different sounds between, for example, the track Years Ago, which is very quiet. It's very, maybe not as haunting as some of the other music we listened to for the show, but in the context of this album, it's quite haunting. It kind of gives me the same feeling that, um, that poem that Willy Wonka <laughs> has in the uh, 1970 version. 
it's got a kind of similar... You know what? It actually does. <laughs> oh, cool. I thought you were going to be like, Andy, we stopped talking about Marilyn Manson. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're absolutely right. It does have a very similar vibe to that poem, which is performed expertly by Gene Wilder in that scene. So yeah, you go from something like years ago, jump back a few tracks, and you have the really fun, upbeat, hard rock and Department of Youth, jump back another couple tracks again, and you have this piece that's quite theatrically introduced by Vincent Price, and between each track, and in some cases within each track, you do have this quite nice variety. Yeah, uh, some folks... As a standout for I was listening to, yeah. Mm. yeah. I was trying to think about some folks. Yeah, because you get, you know, it starts off... It's got that very, like... You can see it as a stage show with the, like, piano and the clicks and the... Some folks love to see red Some folks never talk about it's it It's got this kind of... Uh, jazz club sleaze mm. and then you get into the chorus and it's little river band mm. <laughs> you know if you listen to um help is on the way you listen to the chorus of that and the chorus of you know some folks it's like oh it's kind of the same thing <laughs> you know you also get in the uh title track welcome to my nightmare it starts with this really like bluesy intro and then you know towards the end it's it just has this like injection of energy and it becomes really like funky and I've seen people liken it to disco mm. and which you know 1970s that was very much on vogue disco tracks on it so it's you know something that cooper was really open to working with i know pretties for you is the first one first one from 69 and i think that pulls a bit more from acid rock or psychedelic rock yeah absolutely that was in that was deep deep in late 60s psychedelia how does alice cooper the band differ from alice cooper as the solo project so the alice cooper band had a stable lineup throughout the period of the band up to 1974 i don't remember the names of the other members just off the top of my head but fake uh, fan yeah fake <laughs> fan um but they were a stable lineup throughout right from the band's origins in like the mid-1960s when alice cooper splits he leaves the band entirely behind so alice cooper the solo project is when it becomes about alice cooper the guy and you know the character alice cooper the band very much just it, 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 there's a hard end to Alice Cooper the band when they release Muscle of Love in 74 their awesome last name. album <laughs> brilliant name yeah is there much of a sonic or aesthetic shift obviously there's going to be more emphasis on Alice Cooper as the character uh, with the solo works but 
Yeah, I think you can really track the development of Alice Cooper's sound between each of these albums as it goes on. You start with Pretty's For You, it's very psychedelic, it's very much in the realm, as you said, of acid rock. It strips out a lot of the psychedelia, but there's still a little bit left over on the next album, Easy Action. There's a little bit of the psychedelia sticks around for the next two albums, but is mostly stripped out by the time Killers comes out. There's, I think, one or two tracks on there that still have that kind of lingering sensibility. When you get to Schools Out and Billion Dollar Babies, the focus has pretty much entirely shifted to this bombastic, glam-influenced hard rock, and you move into this new album, you have a couple tracks that have that bombastic kind of glam rock, the aforementioned um, Department of Youth and Escape, but you also have, this is where a lot of that experimentation with stuff like jazz, with a little bit of lounge music, with, this is the first time, I believe, where you have kind of like monologues and character work in the songs, and that becomes something that would be a staple throughout. And then when you get to the albums after this, there's a little bit of disco in um, Alice Cooper Goes to Hell, in Lace and Whiskey, that re it introduces um, some kind of 50s and early 60s rock and roll sensibilities, especially on the track You and Me, which is like a really heartfelt love song. So yeah, yeah, there's a lot of continuity, especially because they had Bob Ezrin, the producer, rejoin Alice for this one, but you can, I think here, you can also hear the sonic change on top of, you know, the theatrical change. Mm. Yeah, with regards to that theatrical change, we've mentioned it, but we haven't explained it fully that this is a concept album. Yeah, yeah, and not only that, but when the album became the basis of a live theatrical show, which turned into a world tour in 1975-76, they also made a TV special movie called Alice Cooper, The Nightmare that goes along with this in 1975 and a concert film in 1976. That TV special actually won an Emmy and was nominated at the Grammys. Shit. I've never watched it. I've watched the live tour um, concert film. It's pretty good. You get a really good idea for what audiences were like introduced to kind of for the first time in the mid-70s. But yeah, it kind of relies on it being a concept album for the theatrical element to work. You're right to bring that up. So there's a narrative underlying all the songs on this album, or is it more of a loose concept album? Uh, it's kind of in between. Everything takes place within the dreams of a child named Stephen, but that's kind of as much of a concept as you get. It's not as developed as, for example, when we were doing the show, we did a couple of albums that King Diamond worked on. And when those albums came up, there's a very defined concept, there is a well-developed story, there is an element of storytelling that is intrinsic to the music. In this case, it's more kind of playing fast and loose with dream logic, with things that just kind of shift inexplicably to tell the story of one child's nightmare. And so it's kind of in between. There is a very defined story element. There is this child named Stephen. He's having a nightmare, and we're kind of following along his dreams. But because it all takes place in a dream, it has dream logic. Mm. Things just kind of shift from one mood and one sensibility to the other. Sounds like a precursor to Killroy was here. 
Kind of. You don't look happy <laughs> about that. Yeah, I, I really wish Kelroy was here worked, because I do kind of like, you know, I, I, I'm a fan of the goofy, just kind of like, yeah, the man's going to try and bring down rock and roll because the youth are too rebellious. I, I, I've got a sympathy for that stuff. Like, yeah. I still think it's fun. I stand with the modern man. I, I too stand with the modern man. <laughs> Is there... <laughs> I know that there's Welcome to My Nightmare, with the numeral as opposed to the yeah. preposition, I don't know. Yeah, in case it wasn't obvious, we're talking about T-O, not T-double-O. Yeah, the one with Kesha. <laughs> yes, the is, one with Kesha. Is there a lot of continuity between the narratives of both this album and Welcome to My Nightmare, and also any other Alice Cooper works? As far as I'm aware, I mean, I was like the album that had just come out when I got into Alice Cooper and kind of late 2000s early 2010s was Along Came a Spider but the one that kind of came out when I started listening to Alice Cooper was Welcome to My Nightmare and at the time I was kind of like a you know the kind of like young teenager who listens to classic rock and think that's where the real music is so I don't know I think I had mixed opinions on having Kesha on board. <laughs> I seem to recall you bringing it to school one day, just out of disbelief, just to show everybody. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Um, in terms of concept, character of Stephen returns. This is essentially Stephen as an adult, having a nightmare reminiscent of the nightmares that he had as a child. So there is actually quite a bit of concept uh, continuity. In terms of music... Um, this was around when Alice Cooper was having a little bit of a phase where he liked to think that he was bringing back the old school rock and roll, but he was kind of playing a very 2000s and early 2010s style of rock and roll that kind of began with the eyes of Alice Cooper in the mid-2000s. It was a bit of a detour with, well, with Along Came a Spider, because that's an out-and-out -out metal album, and it kind of comes back a little bit albeit with a lot of pop sensibility, a lot of experimentation with kind of early 2010s popular music. And that kind of, I think, speaks to Alice Cooper's kind of determination to also keep his fans off guard. Um, which was something that, if I remember right, and I'm dredging up memories from more than 10 years ago now, if I remember right, he did talk a lot in the interviews for Welcome to My Nightmare about wanting to keep his fans on edge as well and yeah, do well, something that they wouldn't expect. Yeah, I mean, no one was expecting special forces. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, that early 80s um, new wave detour is some of his more fascinating work, but you can really tell that his head wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just, I really want to meet the person responsible for skeletons in my closet. Because I know it's not the Alice Cooper we've listened to today. <laughs> and I know it's not the Alice Cooper we could listen to today. Yeah, unfortunately I think the man responsible for that song is trapped entirely within those albums. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's the only way we can contact them these days. <laughs> Beautiful. Perform a seance. Put on Special Forces. Put on Dada. Yeah, one song on this album I want to highlight, and I really want to get both of your opinions on it, is... Only Women Bleed. This is a track that wasn't originally written for this album, it was repurposed for this album. I personally think that in the context in which it was put out, we're talking about the glam era, we're talking about 
not sleaze rock, but very sleazy 70s rock and roll. There's the glitz, there's the glamour, there's rampant alcoholism and cocaine use, and... The glory days. And let's be pretty open about it here, it was a pretty misogynistic era mm. in music. Um, it would kind of be beaten by that late 80s, early 90s era that I have a problematic relationship <laughs> with. Um, but... It's, I don't think you're the one that's problematic in this situation, though. But this song is something completely out of the blue. I mean, there are songs from a lot of bands from that era that kind of take the perspective of a put-upon woman whose life isn't really going the way they want it. But this is a song that directly addresses domestic violence. It directly addresses deep, deep personal mental trauma. And that's, like, it comes completely out of the blue for the era and context in which it was written, at least when you're talking about the really big mainstream hard rock bands of the era. And I want to get, because I personally think it's a quite heartfelt song, I think that when Dick Wagner wrote it, it was intended to be taken as, you know, a song for women whose lives have been put upon and have been, you know, damaged for the worse by men in their lives. But I don't know, I wanted to kind of get your opinions on on only women bleed i i agree that it does kind of come out of the blue lyrically and musically kind of musically it reminds me of the you know start of um brain damage by pink floyd with that like picked guitar also said that if Alice Cooper released that as a woman, he'd be labelled a man-hating bitch. Mm. There is certainly um, the case that, and not just Alice Cooper's gender, but his status by that point as a bona fide rock and roll legend kind of allowed him a little bit of freedom to write a song like that. And I think you're right, if this was a had been put out by, say, a singer-songwriter, the kind of, you know kind of B or C team, kind of singer-songwriter, folk musician a couple years earlier, it would have its fans, but there would be a fairly big chunk of that kind of, like, pig-headed rock and roll, you know, the kind of stereotype of your 70s rock and roller, um, or at least the fans. Yeah, and, like, also, uh, three years prior, uh, John Lennon released a single that uh, isn't as remembered as most of his other ones today, called woman is the n-word of the world mm. and um if you think like well actually at the same time john lennon was a kind of a wife beater mm. i forgot where i was going with that i just wanted to mention that john lennon's a piece of shit <laughs> that that is you know um this is something that's kind of tarnished lennon's kind of not lennon lennon's reputation in more recent years is his um has a real-world relationship to women, so you kind of call into question the earnestness of that song, you know, unfortunate title aside. <laughs> yeah. But in this case, like, I'm not really aware, there hasn't really been, like, an Alice Cooper scandal in the same way that there has been for oh so many other 70s musicians. Mm. Um, and Alice Cooper has interpersonally always been held up as being kind of a good guy, all things considered. I mean, the 
guy's a fucking Sunday school teacher for fuck's sake. <laughs> yeah, that that was yeah you know part of the point that I was bringing home was uh, it's completely different to hear it from you know to hear a song that's supposed to be you know siding with women while on the other hand the person who's writing it and singing it is complete shit. <laughs> Mm. You know, it's kind of like, in the same way John Lennon was, you know, singing about, like, oh, imagine there's no possessions, while after he left the studio getting into a limousine. It's, I, I'm not the biggest fan of John Lennon, I'm pu- I'm just putting that out there. Really? Um, I wouldn't have guessed. But don't let, <laughs> but maybe, maybe I've uh, spiraled out of control with the conversation. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> Nick, did you have anything to add? I can't really speak to how it would play amongst its contemporaries again having not much experience with that era of music or that particular sound from that particular era looking at it from more modern lens i guess uh it still comes across as incredibly tender as incredibly genuine as well yeah it still comes across as quite tender and quite genuine and quite a sweet moment yeah and i think you know with that soft acoustic opening there's kind of a string section backing it up there is i think that between wagner and cooper there's been a lot of care to make sure that the lyrical side of things is very closely integrated with the musical side of things on that track Mm. there's been a lot of care to make sure that this is one of the serious message songs of the album it's arguably the only message song of the album maybe department of youth in a more upbeat in a more upbeat way is as well but in this case it's really hard to listen to that and come away from it i think thinking that this is anything other than a sincere sort of cry out on cooper and wagner's part about the plight of about the plight of victims of domestic violence and it's also when you consider the perspective of the album is from a child's perspective you've got to wonder if this is you know one of those cases where real life has influenced this child's nightmare because mm. if you know even if there's not necessarily violence happening a really unstable relationship between two parents especially if one of them is particularly put upon and it is usually women unfortunately that is going to impact child's development and yeah it's going to impact their dreams they're going to be having dreams where they're you know they're going to be scared they're going to have feelings of fear and upset associated with this kind of like real life reality so i think taking that song putting it in the context of a child's nightmare really kind of brings out the seriousness of the song itself because you're kind of not only hearing this song in the context of alice cooper being quite heartfelt about the plight of women in american society at that point in time you are also kind of sitting back and thinking about it thinking about it a little bit and then you're also thinking and this is from a child's perspective this is the kind of the secondary the tertiary impact of broken relationships on on the people around them who aren't necessarily directly in that relationship it is i think one of not only alice cooper's standout moments as a musician and dick wagner's as well he definitely deserves credit for originally writing the track but i think it's one of the standout moments especially from a male performer of the 70s hard rock scene but you know another thought that i had about it was like maybe actually that part of it uh at that point it's that's not a nightmare because it 
it is a very adult position to have. And if this is, you know, thinking of the other things in these nightmares uh, of a child is like spiders. I think and, Black Widow sets that up quite nicely as well because you have. I could be I could be a bit blurry on that, but the woman like or after mating with the black widow there's uh, an eating of the other person there's a mm. devouring of them mm. um, and if you have that as something a little bit more subconscious almost if you have that in the context of a dream and then later on in the album you have the curtain being peeled back a little bit and you have these figures being demystified almost and brought back down to reality uh, i think it's incredibly well paced uh in terms of how an album is sequenced and how the album flows together it comes back around into itself quite organically and imp- retroactively improves earlier parts of the album not to say that they were awful or that they were bad <laughs> in any way they're already black widow's already a pretty pretty great song is that the one which vincent price is on or is that Devil's... It's Devil's Food. Devil's which Food, which the, leads into Black Widow. Yeah, yeah, they're one of those two-for-one tracks where it's okay. actually kind of just one song. Okay. Yeah. No, that's a, it's a really good observation. It wasn't where I was going, which was... All right, okay. <laughs> no, I, I... The way that I was thinking about it was it's, it's such an adult way to see interpersonal relationships that I, you know, thought that it fit in with the concept of the album being about nightmares that like, Oh, sometimes in the middle of a nightmare, you have this, you know, part that's relatively not a nightmare. Mm. And that happens to be that part where he's like dreaming of himself as an adult now and thinking like, Hey, here's how I want to be when I'm an adult and being, you know, a good person. And then it's followed up with, you know, another fun song, Department of Youth. Mm. And that's part of the kind of dream logic breaking back in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This It's an album, like, the reason I picked this for an early one isn't just because I really love Alice Cooper. It's an album that has layers to it. Mm. Um, it's an album that you can actually dig into and really pick apart. And we're yeah. obviously going to have plenty more albums like that. But in terms of the the amount of layer, in, in, in the context of horror, the... Num- the amount of layers, the amount of context you can pick out relative to the fame of an album, and this is an incredibly famous album, you know, this is a huge album for Alice Cooper, it was his biggest album for more than a decade After it, afterwards um, he wouldn't have an album this big until probably either Trash or um, Hey Stupid which is more than a decade later. Oh, that's unfortunate. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, actually, now that you say it, given, given what we've just been talking about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think the one thing with Trash that you can say is that there's none of those vain moments like we discussed earlier on. N- none of those Winger 17 mm. moments. But yeah, you don't have one of those, like, yeah, you know, Motorhead's jailbait. You don't have one of those moments where it's kind of like, oh, alright, guys, I get that it's the 70s or the 80s, but can we not, please? <laughs> yeah, can we? I prefer if we didn't. No, because Trash just goes straight into the uh, BDSM shit, doesn't it? Yeah, Trash is just horny. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> hell yeah. Trash is, trash is... Like, the thing that I think is that Alice Cooper kind of looked around at the playing field, looked around at your Motley Crews, and, like, your... Poor, um, 
maybe not poison by that point, but your rat, your docking, and the only thing you pulled out was like, damn, these guys are really goddamn horny. I'm going to have to make a really horny album. Uh, you know, there is... There's... And there is a place for albums like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But also, there is like a bit of a horny moment on this album with uh, Cold Ethel, which, mm. like, you know, you first listen to it, it's like, oh... Yeah, Ethel's... I, I think I can party with Ethel, and it's like, oh, Ethel's dead. It's like, oh, that's why she's cold. Mm. Oh, this is necrophilia. And then you listen to it for a little more, and you're like, oh, the necrophilia is symbolic of alcohol addiction. Mm. It's the love of death. Like, oh, this thing that, like, you know, party hard, but this thing will kill you eventually. It's, uh, you know... So there's so many layers to it that there's you know, even a, really rewards it really rewards repeat listening yeah there's even a callback to one of the earlier kind of psychedelic era songs inside Cold Ethel because he mentions going to Refrigerator Heaven Refrigerator Heaven is a name of a track from Easy Action oh hell like yeah 1970 album that no one really remembers and this also isn't the first like this is kind of like the grossest grimmest thing that Alice Cooper has ever really touched on and he has returned to more than once Tasty. is, you know, necrophilia, which is like, you know, one of the grossest and most abhorrent crimes someone can kind of commit. It's it's way up there, like, with being... With Winger 17. Yeah, it's way up there with, you know, being kind of like a serial arsonist in terms of, like, how bad it is. It's one of those things that is just viscerally uncomfortable... It's something that is always going to, no matter how it's packaged in, in you know, a cultural sense, no matter how it's packaged, it's always going to give you that kind of like, ugh, ugh. Do, do we yeah. have to talk about that? I mean, honestly, I think I'd have a little bit more respect for a serial arsonist than a necrophiliac, <laughs> but... Yeah, well, it, it depends on whether or not the serial arsonist successfully kills someone. You know, it's, it's, there are awful things, and this is one of them. Yeah, and it's uh, also not the first time that he had touched on the subject. There is a goddamn bone-chilling song on Billion Dollar Babies, um, I Love the Dead, which has these husky, low tones that turn into shouts. It kind of, like, it's husky, it's low, it's gravelly, and it picks up, and there's almost anger in it. It's and, nasty. Yeah, it's, it's nasty. It, it's a nasty topic. And I Love the Dead is a nasty song, whereas this is written to be quite upbeat, and I think that um, juxtaposition kind of, you know, it makes the medicine go down a little better, but it also, once you sit and think about it, especially when you get, you know, sort of the context or, you know, your particular analysis that the song is actually about alcoholism, it kind of, yeah, it just makes it all the more unnerving. Especially, like, if you think about this kind of you know, the connotation of, you know, doing something you love to the point of death, you know, killing yourself to, you know, in the process of enjoyment. It, you know, is one of those things, another one of those layers that you can kind of pick out, peel back, because at the time, Alice Cooper was rapidly becoming a problem alcoholic. Um, and this was something that, as far as I can tell, it primarily hurt Alice Cooper himself, or Vincent Fernier, his actual name. You know, it would primarily hurt Vincent Fernier, the man, more so than being something that spilled out into 
being negative for the people around him. But by the time we get to what we've touched on a couple times, his new wave period, um, and even a little bit before that, in the later 70s and the early 80s, like, the man was drinking himself to death. Yeah, it was... It was the rock star lifestyle. Yeah. For, you know, so many of them. And, you know, it's... Um, for so many people, it started out as, like, oh, party hard, you know, and the songs... It starts off, it's got that, you know, guitar tone, that really thick, it's got that groove, and it's... top three picks of tracks from the album is called Ethel and it's not until kind of stepping back a little bit and reflecting on like actually what is happening that you kind of get this Ethel's not a woman it's Ethel alcohol and it, 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 you kind of see it in a completely different way mm. and it's um, you know I, I wonder how many people listen to it and never pick up on that connotation they I either think like, oh, f- this is a great party song, or like, yeah, cracking open a cold one with the boys, you know? <laughs> I, you know, I hadn't thought of that until you brought it up just before we were sort of discussing this <laughs> album before we recorded. And yeah, no, it, it makes a lot of sense, and it is another one of the things that grounds the album in a little bit of that kind of touch of magic. Well, maybe you know, dark magic, but that kind of... <laughs> Maybe uh, nec- uh, that, necromancy. That touch of, you know, you know, dark sorcery or whatever, that is real-life horror kind of working its way into musical horror, which is something that we'll touch on more with other albums, but it is, you know, even at this early stage, without even really intending to, there is a little bit of that working its way into this album. And, you know, if you take that particular view of that particular track and you kind of consider it in the context of this album which brings up other very very real interpersonal issues that can make for you know really fucking up someone's life grounding it in that kind of reality in a way really really speaks to Alice Cooper's quality as a songwriter his attention to detail. The fact that we can decades down the line pick out something that I think most people probably never thought of, I didn't think of it until you pointed it out, is, you know, it really speaks to his quality and when you add that to the fact that this album isn't even necessarily an album that's meant to be a concept that you can, you know, really pick apart and pull apart and find all these layers to. It's meant to be a vehicle for a live stage show then, you know, I think it really speaks to the quality and how much of a height this album is for Alice Cooper as the individual songwriter. Something that he wouldn't really reach again for a long time. I, you know, I personally, I like a lot of his later 70s and early 80s material, but definitely there weren't as many full cohesive albums that reached the same conceptual height as this album. There are definitely albums that were darker, I think the track from the end of Dada, Pass the Gun Around, is 
one of the darkest new wave tracks ever written. There were albums that, once again, data. There were albums that toyed with having a having you know a kind of high concept running through, at least to the same degree, especially from the inside from the later seventies. Again, one of his darker moments. An album that we covered on the show while it was still a radio show, and you had. On the flip side, you had poppier moments in his discography as well. You had stuff that was arguably a bit more radio-friendly, even than tracks like Escape or Department of Youth, or, for that matter, you know, Black Widow and Welcome to My Nightmare. You had, you know, his dalliance with disco on the album after. You had a lot of kind of, like, kind of, at least spiritually, kind of 50s and 60s throwback on Lace and Whiskey. You had a lot of playing with the character of Alice Cooper, doing almost a David Bowie and kind of like trying to reinvent the character as something new a few times over, over the coming decade. But none of it quite reaches the potential that this album has and that this album manages to realise. It definitely feels the most cohesive out of the Alice Cooper albums that I have heard in terms of sticking to a concept and having, having layers to that concept listening to albums like Last Temptation or Brutal Planet, they're certainly a lot darker, they're certainly sonically a lot heavier, but it feels like more of an aesthetic dalliance than a full-blown committal to the idea. So I don't think personally that he ever got... Well, I don't think that he got as close in terms of a cohesive concept for an album Mm. until 2008's Along Came a Spider, because that is a storytelling album with a set story that runs through the entire thing. It's an album that we might get to at some point, but we'll put a bunch of other artists between now and when we do. But for the longest time, for 30 years easily, this remained his standout concept album. And I think, unless you've got, you know, some kind of last thoughts, I think that gives us a kind of natural place to end things. Do you have any last thoughts? Well, I, I feel like we should uh, at least talk about sort of how the dreams end, because it does have a very... Uh, uh, <laughs> an ending. <laughs> so, the last couple of tracks, um, you know, it starts with Years Ago, which has this very creepy... We talked about it, that that was the track with the you know, a Gene Wilder type mm, yeah. almost delivery. There's a part towards the end, you know, where he's saying, uh, you know, oh, I think I hear someone calling. And, um, you know, the him in his dream, the grown man he's dreaming himself to be is like, no, there's no one calling. <laughs> No, I'm a great big man. No, let's be a little boy. For a little while longer. Maybe an hour. No, Stephen, you have to go back now. Isn't that our mom calling? For me, I'm not ashamed to say that it is straight up just my favorite song in the album, Stephen. 
it has this like wonderful piano motif that you know comes in with the intro in it continues for most of the song and then in the middle of it we were talking about pulling from kind of disparate musical sources there's a the middle section just becomes full prog <laughs> for a while and that um you know repeating piano line gets a bit more uh you know added to it the most directly with kind of dreaming and um you know brings back that like oh someone's calling you know it's there where oh, it's on these tracks as well where um trish features as being the mom character and then after steven you get uh the track the awakening which um there is uh it can be read in different ways the way that i had read it was that Stephen wakes up to realize that he had just killed his mum. But, you know, there's also enough ambiguity in the way that it is written and delivered that, you know, there's Stephen in real life as a boy, which Alice Cooper has really stressed that point when discussing mm. the album. And in that track, he talks about, you know, his wife not being there. So you kind of think like, oh, yeah, this must be from the adult's perspective. But also it has this, it has the kind of like meek voiced section that you get when, you know, you hear Stephen speaking as a boy. And as a way to kind of, you know, close off the album after that, you know, the awakening of Escape is such a, <laughs> you know, that song was written for the arena, mm, you know. Yeah. Um, as well as Department of Youth, also written for the arena. Yeah. It's like, I wish that I wasn't such, like, a kind of, you know, old fuck when I first heard it. Because it's like, I would have absolutely put that on at every fucking party. <laughs> you know? Um, but now, now, now I just, oh, my bones are too brittle for that. <laughs> I also think, if we're picking best or favourite tracks, I think Stephen is the one that stands out the most to me in terms of atmosphere in terms of how it sounds it um reminds me a little bit of i want to say tubular bells yeah a little bit yeah yeah actually now that i think about it just does it for me sonically yeah i i don't know about a favorite song on the album touching on what andy said i like my personal opinion is that the awakening is one of those kind of dream false starts where you think you've kind of entered waking life but it's just you're still in the dream and I think the, the tell for that, for me anyway, is Stephen suddenly being a man, or suddenly having kind of like a, an adult's perspective. 
a wife. Yeah, yeah, he, he's kind of looking for his wife, but Stephen is a child, like, he, he doesn't have a wife. It, mm. It's where Escape, I kind of take that on the end and take quite literally, take that as kind of Stephen, you know, this is either his dream sort of moving into something a little less dark, and it's him kind of escaping from the nightmare, or Escape is kind of like that kind of rush as you kind of, your dreams kind of change a little bit and things kind of move into perspective and you become kind of liminally aware that you're sleeping and starting to wake up. And okay. Escape is literally about escaping from the dream world back into waking life. Yeah, and that glee when you feel, when you realise you didn't just kill your mum. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Can't relate. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you know, it does, I, I appreciate, you know, kind of that, reading of it but also i do really love the if actually he had committed a murder then when he hears like you know the calling stephen and like his dream you know he's like oh is someone calling my name and his dream self is like no wow it sounds really bad but it's like i would have loved it if this if he did hear his mum screaming his name because she was being like no stop killing me um but also it's like i just love you know macabre yeah, it would and... be a much more kind of King Diamondy moment. Yeah, if that were the case. Yeah. So I think you know we're kind of naturally getting to our end. If you're listening in, thank you for listening in. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I can't promise that we'll update them all the time, but that is where we are, social media wise. Um, and leave us a review on your preferred kind of podcasting app of choice, because that you know is one of the things that would you know, really help the podcast kind of get to more ears, and that's the thing we want, is to get to more ears, to find people who really resonate with this kind of material. It's like, why we're making it is to try and reach out to people who resonate with this material in the same way we do, and kind of find the find the kind of depth, the kind of social commentary, the kind of, you know, artistry that we find in this kind of music. You know, if, if you loved it, tell us. If you hated it, like, tell us. And we will find you. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's a great album. It's it's not killer, but it's not trash either. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I think we're going to leave on that. I, th- I think that's a good note to end on. <laughs> yeah. We're going to put it down there, and we're going to finish things off. Find more of them at r1.co.nz forward slash podcast.